Welcome back to March Mad Men, the show with the delusional aspiration to assess every subgenre of horror one by one, and then via tournament decide what their ultimate representative is. One day we'll pit each flavor of horror's champion against each other to determine what is the greatest scary movie ever made. Right now we're in season two, and we're knee deep in the muck with slasher movies. Familiar ground for our pod, I will say. The voice you are hearing belongs to me, John Evans, and you will soon hear the dulcet tones of Rich Eckersley, a 2020 Emmy nominee for the reality series Kevin Hart, Don't Fuck This Up, and screenwriter Vic Wheat, who has penned such films as the found footage mind-bender Devil's Pass. Guys, I'll admit to our audience right now, that uh, we already recorded the previous episode tonight, parts one and two, so this could get a little bit loopy. Rich, are you ready to discuss another six movies, man? I, I certainly will, and I want to point out, but only because that this, this is relevant to the podcast, that you're cherry-picking my credits. I was also <laughs> production manager on The Simple Life with Paris Hilton. <laughs> oh, shit! I was gonna, um, I thought that was going to be a Vic thing, but uh, maybe maybe you both worked on it. Wow, I didn't know that. Maybe, maybe he did, but only one of us has uh, has ridden in the back of a hearse while Paris was driving, and that was me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an anecdote that uh, could come up when we discuss House of Wax. <laughs> Vic, what's uh, what's your feeling as we enter this marathon session? Well, John, I feel like you're also cherry picking my credits. Uh, you know, I, I think Devil's Pass, a, a, a fair number of people have seen. There's a little movie on Netflix called The Worthy that is uh, in the Arabic language, but I think is, is a, yes. a very strong film, and I would encourage people to check that out. I Unfortunately, I, I was more Simple Life adjacent. Uh, I mm. did meet Paris and Nicole a, a, a handful of times. But, uh, no, my direct credits were on Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Oh. So uh, when, when Kim Kardashian gets uh, impaled on a on a Christmas tree in some movie – uh, I will. Uh, I, I will have more to contribute to that. I look forward to that. I'm excited to talk about these. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I will say that the worthy is certainly worthy of of your time, listeners. Uh, I, I dug that movie as well. Uh, maybe I should stop uh, just asking you to play the hits. You know what I mean? It's, uh... Yeah, John. I got a B side. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, speaking of A sides, I think. Black Christmas qualifies as a uh, a smash hit single in the world of slasher films, and I uh, I'm not going to introduce it because Rich is going to introduce it. But I'm just going to say before he does that that I believe Black Christmas season is coming on this show. I don't need to tell you much more than the fact that I love this movie and I do have it in my own personal 50 to 100 top horror films of all time. I think it has a very good shot at going far in a slasher movie tournament. It's somehow extraordinarily influential, a landmark of the genre and not just because of the time frame that it came out in, but it's also weirdly truly strangely bizarrely unique no matter how many similar films have followed in its footsteps so it's it's a number two seed in our in our tournament in the old school division which of course are the 
these are the classics of the genre that laid the groundwork that would later be built upon by peak franchise films, meta films, Dark Horses, all of them. They owe a debt in some way to old school. That's certainly the case with Black Christmas. And it's going up against Terror Train, which is a 15 seed in our tournament. Uh, much more lightly regarded, at least by me, but it does have Jamie Lee Curtis going for it. So, so that's a good thing. Hey, Vic. Uh, I want to know what you're drinking. I'm uh, I'm going to crack a Burr Hoppy Red Northwest Red Ale. I believe this is, yes, Widmer Brothers. Uh, going back to my uh, my Seattle days. There it is. And um, I've never had this before in my life, so I hope it's good. Give us a, give us a quick review. I see you taking a mm-hmm. sip there. Hmm. I, I mean, it's it's called a Hoppy Red. I'm getting more red than hoppy, but I guess, you know, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool IPA guy, so my uh, standards for hoppy are pretty high, but it's um, it's it's tasty. It's definitely not bland. It, it definitely has that a little bit of a lingering hoppy finish, and it, it didn't, doesn't hit you in the mouth, but it's got, uh, it's got that going for it. I'm enjoying it. What do you have going there? Uh, I am once again going with the last of my backwoods bastard. You know, it's we don't have a lot of backwoods bastards present in in today's matchups, but uh, you know, uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Six, I guess that sort of that sort of qualifies. Oh, definitely. All right, so yeah, let's uh, Vic tell us about Terror Train. Do I have to, John? Okay, fine. Terror Train from 1980, directed by Roger Spottiswood. John, you mentioned Jamie Lee Curtis, but it's worth noting this was the first film from Spottiswood who would go on to have a, a fairly successful sort of workmanlike career in Hollywood. He would do uh, one of the, the Brosnan-era Bond films, although I would argue that his best film by far was an HBO original called And the Band Played On, which is about the onset of the uh, AIDS crisis. Highly recommended Nothing to do with horror in this sense, but uh, a wonderful film. So he's a wonderful director. Not so much here. He's doing his best. Uh, this was budgeted at three and a half million. It grossed eight. Uh, the log line, and stop me if this sounds familiar, college kids pull a prank that goes horribly wrong. Three years later, at the biggest party of the year, the kids that committed the prank begin dying one by one, except, get this, it's on a train. See? Terror train. See what we did there? <laughs> On a train. So I'm, I'm being sarcastic, but it actually is kind of a, a novel setting for a slasher. Uh, as I mentioned, this was Roger Spottiswood's first film. I think this movie reflects his, his work ethic. It reflects his work. It's sort of generic, but it's competent. Uh, I think Jamie Lee Cur- Curtis is better than the movie deserves. I think the initial Groucho Marx mask that the killer wears, although he does get a couple of costume changes, uh, is weirdly effective and sort of iconic. Um, and there's a lot of mistaken identity thanks to all the costumes that allow some of the suspense scenes to to work sort of better than you think they would. But none of it works terribly well. It's all just very generic and flat. It's not very well shot. I did really like the third act. I think that it was it was pretty suspenseful once they sort of get there. Uh, and I did note that um, uh, there was a so this was a, a line that I came across. 
I don't give this film this kind of depth, but someone did. And so I wanted to float it past you guys since we're talking about it and just see if this if this adds anything to you. Because otherwise this feels to me mostly like a, a pretty forgettable entry in the, the slasher film uh, genre. I will note actually that I did – uh, I know I brought this up earlier, but um, Jamie Lee Curtis did an interview on Eli Roth's History of Horror podcast. She barely remembered doing this movie. She mostly talked about how cold it was and that she flatly did it for the money. And it's kind of impressive that she gives as good a performance as she did, given that she was mostly miserable and just collecting uh, what felt to her at the time like a substantial paycheck. Uh, but yeah, the, the yes, point- but, but, but I, I, I will say one of my notes was this is not one of her more memorable performances either i guess from her perspective or mine so yeah i mean i'm i'm a little surprised to hear that but i mean there's no way she didn't deliver an oscar caliber performance and not remember it i will say not that at all. <laughs> but 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 with the rest of the the actors in relief i think she's she's actually pretty good yes um, by by comparison it is an oscar worthy exactly. performance so yeah so a uh, film scholar, film scholar named Jonathan, John Kenneth Muir notes that the film's organizing principle is, quote, magic or the often undetectable gulf between reality and illusion. In other words, characters live and die in terror train based in large part on how they perceive the reality or non-reality around them. Muir adds, if the would-be victims can see through the illusion, they tend to survive. If they can't do so, they die. It's as simple as that, but this approach makes Terror Train a more complex and layered film than the average slasher picture. Wow. I don't know if I agree with that, but that's someone clearly put a lot of thought into this. And uh, so, again, I, I I wanted to raise that because maybe there's more to this picture than I'm seeing. Well, uh, Rich is back, and uh, you missed a fantastic insight that almost makes me want to watch Terror Train again, which I never thought I would say, Rich. But it's it's basically just that there's sort of a rule or a logic that runs through the film that, and and obviously with David Copperfield being a presence in this film and costumes and stuff. The notion is that if a character can see through illusion, they will survive. But if they fall for the trick, they die, which is really interesting. I I will say I actually read that same quote before I watched Terror Train. I don't know that it necessarily helped (laughs) my perception of Terror Train. So, so maybe we won't like, double back. Just, just to spare you, yeah, just to spare you that that viewing, because you feel like maybe you missed out. I just wanted to give you a heads up. Thank you. Yeah, that that kind of confirms my gut feeling. But uh, Vic, did you have have anything else to say about uh, about Terror Train before we uh, go back to Black Christmas? Absolutely nothing, John. <laughs> All right. Well, Rich, now that you've rejoined us, it uh, looks like you're in your garage. That looks nice and warm and comfortable. Yeah. Hold on. I'm just being like hustled from like space to space. <laughs> <laughs> Where, are they, kicking, are they going to kick you out of the garage? This looks like the movie Host. <laughs> it does. He looks like he has one of those rigs on, like that uh, Darren Aronofsky uses, you know, where he has that camera that's mounted on your chest. Exactly. <laughs> 
I hate that. <laughs> I hate that camera. I think it's, it's called, called a, a Nori. Cam. Nori rig? Oh, Snorri. Snorri. Yeah, Snorri. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin that's Smith right. used it in Red State, and it drove me insane in a movie mm. I, I was otherwise intrigued by. All right. Well, uh, before we double back and talk about Black Christmas, while Rich gets some stuff sorted out, let me opine about Terror Train. I've only seen it once, to be honest, and it was for our show. I did watch the opening sequence again subsequently when Joe Bob Briggs featured the movie on The Last Drive-In, which is my favorite show in the world, FYI. But uh, I didn't care to see Terror Train again. It does kind of have its weird bordering on so bad it's good elements like the open and the whole David Copperfield and his assistant storyline. There's also a live band on the train, a lot of strangeness, but uh, mostly I found the film to be a bit dull and the killer to be underwhelming. The big act three scenario with its final girl fight also plays pretty weakly to me from a 2022 perspective the killer's costume changes, as as Vic mentioned, are fine, I guess. I, I did not mind the Groucho Marx look. I, I do think it is somewhat iconic. Uh, certainly the most iconic thing about this movie. You know what movie you're talking about when you see that image. And it, it's, it's mildly creepy. But I think the actual kills are pedestrian. And as we've kind of been determining with various of, of these slasher films... How well does the who done it intrigue work? Well, I don't much care about that with these movies and in Terror Train it gets pretty ridiculous in the convolutions of of that particular game with the audience. I can definitely see someone having an affinity for the train setting and the New Year's Eve costumes and so on. But as I, I, I said a few minutes ago, I don't think this is one of the best, most, most memorable Jamie Lee Curtis performances. Overall, I just think it's a ho-hum movie. Uh, I kind of understand its sort of place in the genre, but all things being equal, I probably would have put something else in our tournament. One or both of you guys are the reason that it's here. And uh, yeah, it's a big meh for me. Oh, sure. Blame us, John. <laughs> I'm throwing you under the train. <laughs> ah, I see what you did there. I had, I'd, I'd never seen this movie before, so it yeah, definitely neither. wasn't me. Huh. Um, Vic! I, I, no, I had never seen it either. Who put this movie in the competition? <laughs> Wait, you guys are, you're shitting me. <laughs> no? No, like somehow in those, you know, I, okay, Peek behind the curtain here. We we generated three lists, and I just went through the three lists, and mathematically, I put the movies in that, that had support, and somehow Terra Train made it in. I don't know. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Perhaps it was that um, kid, that kid that we pranked uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I know how to torture them. Here, yeah. watch Terror Train. I will say that the... came on... The three of us looking at that scene together the way we we did, like with Oculus or something, I think it would be pretty fun to unpack that scene. Um, but it's not a compliment to the movie. Which one? Just the Jamie Lee Curtis scene in the opening? I'm talking, yes, the opening sequence with the uh-huh. the, the prank gone, gone wrong. 
Well, Did it? I, I it, mean, it seems like that prank went exactly according to plan. <laughs> <laughs> Except, I guess, for the like, twisting the up in the. The kid who orchestrated the prank seems like a real like sociopath. Like he can't he can't have fun unless he's hurting someone. Yes. So, you know, like it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I, I will say like my take on this thing, like this was my first time watching it. Like it is definitely not, you know, like Halloween on a train as the uh, as the posters and, and producers um, will attest, but I will say it's it's light years better than the uh, than the worst uh, Jamie Lee Curtis um, film that we'll review uh, in the, the course of this podcast. In my personal opinion, I actually think like the train interiors make for kind of like a compelling like framing in terms of ways to to move the characters around. I think that they capture it pretty well. Like it's all like rendered realistically in terms of like their their movements, and it adds this like unique setting. You know, again, I thought this film looked good, especially for its era. It's worth noting that this was the same DP as Barry Lyndon, who was like well known as like a you know the the Kubrick film that was completely lit using natural light sources, um, despite the fact that it was shot on film. Like one of the only movies to really pull that off, at least in terms of any kind of grand scale. Um, you know, and he brought some of the goods to like shooting this uh, the train on the train. Um, you know, I think veteran acting Ben Johnson is like solidly good in this and like fun. Just like every time he he pops up, you know, despite the fact that he doesn't have much to work with. Uh, David Copperfield is uh, in this movie. Um, and I'd say that it is uh, it's too long, uh, mostly thanks to his copious uh, magic sequences for for my taste i mean jamie lee curtis is just it's her character is just a non-character who is defined by little more than one event in her entire life and i think that the the shallowness of this movie is really emphasized by the fact that once the killer is dead the credits just instantly roll because there's literally nothing else to say at that point hey rich i'm i'm introducing this movie Okay, so if you could not mention the DP and stuff, like that's that was my job. <laughs> well, okay. I just I just assumed Vic, I was gone while you were doing your intro. I just assumed that you talked about the, the DP and the the editing staff. Like I just you know you you normally do your research. So well, I want to jump on something. I, I want to reference that uh, that Rich had a very mysterious, intriguing comment that this is not the worst Jamie Lee Curtis slasher movie in the tournament, and I want to point out that Halloween H two O is not in the tournament. So <laughs> I'm, I'm well aware. <laughs> what Jamie Lee Curtis movie could possibly be worse? <laughs> <laughs> well just 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 in this tournament actually i'm thinking now i don't know if i saw it in the rankings i don't, know. I don't I'll, think I'll so you know i up. yeah i just i did a cursory look while you were talking of the bracket and uh, another uh bad jamie lee curtis movie did not immediately jump out at me but eh, we'll see we'll see yeah well, the, 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 the guys the simple fact is that if h2o had been in here it wouldn't have been a competition it right? would have. Like we just would have. We just could have declared it the winner, <laughs> and everything, and and all of this would have been moot. So that's why it's not in here. Just so you know. Okay, so I just here. Here's the thing. Maybe you can clarify. Maybe somehow it didn't make it into the brackets. In which case, I would hate to imagine that I watched prom night for no reason. Oh God. 
Oh God, yeah. no prom night is in the. <laughs> no, it is not. No, it is not. not. Are you sure? No, no. Prom night it is was definitely on the. It, it, it was it, definitely on the list. It was on the list. It was considered, and thank God it didn't make it because it is worse than Terror Train. I agree with you. Not worse than Halloween H two O. No, okay. I'm I'm being hyperbolic. All right, let's get back to the business at hand. <laughs> no, no. It would have been a Leslie Nielsen uh, appearance in this competition, that would have been and good. that would have been worth something. So, anyway, and sorry. I wonder, I, I'm sure Ted Raimi is in that movie, so that would have been good, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rich, at long last, tell us about Black Christmas. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this one, so keep me on the rails. Um, <laughs> so Black Christmas, which was originally titled uh, Silent Night, Evil Night, is a uh, 1974 Canadian film um, produced and directed by Bob Clark, who's known for a couple of other key movies that we'll, we'll touch on here. Um, it stars Olivia Hussey, f- fresh off of her success with uh, Romeo and Juliet, future Lois Lane, Margot Kidder, and, uh, and John Saxon, who is no stranger to, to fans of this subgenre in particular. You know, it's basically about a bunch of sorority sisters who are in their sorority house and they're receiving threatening phone calls. They're eventually stalked and murdered one by one by a deranged killer during the the Christmas season. It's clearly kind of inspired by an urban legend, and it's gone on, I think, to inspire many, 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 many other films um, of similar plot, including at least two remakes, um, at least two, like, direct remakes. You know, upon its, like, original release in 74, like, it received pretty mixed reviews. You know, and I think that it's been really kind of revered in retrospect it's often referred to as one of the earliest slasher films especially with it because of its influence on halloween i mean there are people that uh, that will name this as the greatest horror film ever made in in public forums whether or not you agree with that is is debatable but hey that's what we're here for it's interesting to note that like this movie has also come up as being sort of a like quote unquote like feminist film and i think you can see like similarities to some degree to like films like Slumber Party Massacre and like some of the, the the themes that we that we talked about there, but like it was definitely not something that like Clark at least like as the director like set out to to do. But like it's worth noting that this is definitely a, a movie that is a, you know in, in addition to being like four years before Halloween, like the the cast is you know these sorority sisters and like they are genuinely funny like they're realistic they're intelligent like they have plot lines that extend beyond the the, the borders of the the murders happening in the in the house um and so you know i can see where like those kind of uh critiques are coming from i just gotta have to get out of the way that like the similarities to a christmas story which is one of clark's other movies if you've internalized that film into your dna quite as much as i have like simply cannot be overlooked from like the warm like soft soft focused camera work to the exteriors of the sorority house that are just like a dead ringer for the house in a christmas story um it's very clear that you're dealing with the same filmmaker here i am less familiar with bob clark's other marquee feature porkies um so i can't speak to the similarities there but maybe you guys uh, can I think that the the women who compose the cast here do a lot with this movie, which is is like saying something in terms of like they 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 really do like form relationships that are that are believable. I think that both actresses, especially Olivia Hussey and 
uh, Margot Kidder, like turning these like memorable kind of distinct character performances, you know, John Saxon playing a police lieutenant, which is also the, the same rank that he had in nightmare on Elm street, I believe also like turns in like a pretty like good performance. And you got some, you know, some memorable moments. There's like Mrs. Mack, the house mother who's going around hiding booze bottles all over the place. The moaner, as he's known, uh, who's essentially the the killer of this film, who's constantly calling and making these harassing phone calls to the girls, is really pretty unsettling. Like it, it veers yeah. from that kind of like lascivious, um, the kind of tone that like the the driller killer had in Slumber Party Massacre at the end. But then it's also mixed with this like multiple personality jumping all over the place, ranging into this, uh, the, the, like the, the, the Billy voice where it's like, he's sort of having conversations and seems like he's like living out some kind of childhood trauma only to like kind of snap back into the characters, the killer and to, and to threaten these women with their, with their lives. You get a prominent, um, kill early in the film that results in a, in a corpse that kind of haunts the rest of the movie, um, that you come back to over and over again, it's placed in a just sort of an iconic pose in a rocking chair with a bag over its head. And it is an insanely unsettling motif that the, the, the film keeps coming back to over and over and over again. There's a cat that comes up and keeps messing with the, with the corpse in the attic. I mean, this body really does have its own sort of like C storyline uh, in the course of this film that manages to like stick around like through the, like the, the closing credits. The kills in this movie are, I'd say, are kind of like wide ranging in terms of quality, but there's one murder in particular where the director has intercut the the murder, which is made with like a glass instrument with children outside, reminding you that it's Christmas time as they sing like "O Come All Ye Faithful" as carolers. Uh, it's a really standout um, kill and genuinely very chilling. And I'd say that you know the the, the claims that this is like the first slasher. You know, you can see that DNA in here for sure. I mean, like you really get like kind of like a proper tableau or like a series of them. You definitely get like a sort of like classic like final girl run through the house. And there's all this like insane business of like trying to like trace the the phone calls only just to, to discover where the where the killer really is. If you don't know the answer to that, then you haven't been listening to grade school horror tales for your entire life. Ultimately, I'll leave it up to the internet to debate who is the first slasher. And I'm not really sure that I care anymore. But if we're holding up Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like the apex of the subgenre, and maybe we're not. But if we are, I'd say that this film is a more recognizable ancestor of where the slasher truly slashes while mixing in some of the more tasteful and psychological and character elements of something that we see in, like, Psycho. But whereas, like, Psycho, despite its first act fake-out, is ultimately about Norman Bates, Black Christmas establishes the pattern where that is truly what this genre would be about, which is innocent victims picked off by a maniac one by one, seemingly without cause, only one of which manages to stay one step ahead of the killer until that final frame. Well, Rich, I have seen uh, Porky's, and it is essentially a shot-for-shot remake of this, except with fewer sharp implements. So, I I wanted to clear that up. Porky's was executive produced by Arnold Copelson. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We'll get to our Copelson stories, Vic. Don't worry. But thank you, Rich. I think that that went into um, loving detail, which is what this show is is all about 
And I do love this movie passionately. So I'm glad that you gave our listeners, you know, such a vivid portrait of this movie. And I think hopefully, God willing, we will have time to, to kind of discuss its role in the Pantheon. And uh, I've already disclosed that it's it's obviously got my vote here. So, uh, yeah, what are, what are we doing here, folks? Is, is, does anyone want to make a case for Terra Train, or are we just going to move on? <laughs> <laughs> I think we have bigger fish to fry. I yeah, think we I do. I'm going to say, yeah, I think we've... I, there are things I want to say about Black Christmas, but I see no reason to bring them up now. And I think I said my piece on Terror Train, except to say that I am stunned, stunned that the DP was the DP on Barry Lyndon. I, I wonder what happened in his life. <laughs> that, that was Especially the, 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 yeah, Terror Train followed Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, I don't. I, I Maybe he was just thrilled to like light things without only candles for a while, you know, and he got lazy. I don't know. Uh, maybe they <laughs> maybe they threw like the whole budget, three and a half million dollar budget. They gave three million dollars to the DP. Yeah, the and they best spent boy. Five hundred thousand dollars and everything else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's it. I don't know how else to explain the, it. The so, best yeah, that, lighting that, rigs in the business were used on that film. Yes. Okay. That is my takeaway from this whole conversation. Everything else is just <laughs> filler. All right. Well, uh, as expected, a walk over there. Black Christmas advances. Terror train derails. As is customary, we're going to put a pin in the map right there. Come back next time for the last two matchups of this episode, which are Scream versus the town that dreaded sundown, the 2014 version, and Peeping Tom goes up against pieces. Until then, everybody, stay safe out there. Adios.